An irrational may or may not agree with a valid cogent argument. An exploitable person uh, will make the false connections that we are led to, or worse, think that uh, they are smart for doing so. Now, we often make false interpretations. It happens all the time, but we've got to be aware that the first thing we interpret, our first our first interpretation may not be accurate. There might be 10 other interpretations, right? Slow down. <laughs> so it's, it's probabilities, and we are all exploitable in some fashion or another. But trying to be just an astute, critical thinker lowers the probability of us being duped so readily. But just thinking we are just uh, astute thinkers is, uh, is that even the right word? Astute. <laughs> Is it just thinking that you're an astute critical thinker or trying to be? It's 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 not uh, is no good. <laughs> we need to actually take the time to think about logical fallacies and logic, and try to see the flaws and weaknesses in our own reasoning as well, of course, as in others. We seem to be so good at finding it in others sometimes, but not all the times. Well, obviously, that's the whole point. We get duped, right? So trust no one and question. Everything. Bernays sums this uh, sums up his his profession perfectly when he writes: "Stereotype is the basis of a large part of the work of the PR council." Now, let me read that to you once again. This is the words of Edward Bernays: "Stereotype is the basis of a large part of the work of the PR council." Is there some truth that we can be blind to facts based on our limits of morality and belief? Yes, of course, right? The, the limits of morality are a harder concept to get over than limits of belief. If someone says they were abducted by aliens, for example, right? That may be beyond the, uh, the belief limit of the listener, right? But if one conspires to manipulate the people, uh, by hiring bogus doctors to articulate some company's medical truth, right? Uh, and then, then we hide the origin of that, of that narrative under a few layers of deception. That may be unbelievable because it's beyond the ethical person's moral limits. They might think nobody would do that, right? So it is, it is belief, but it's also belief based on morals. So they have a hard time... Uh, just believing that someone would do that, never mind doing it on their own. And, and, and to see the, the moral limits of many humans, so-called, uh, you know, you could just Google um, thrown off a roof <laughs> and you will see how reprehensible a lot of humans, so-called, are, right? So this is the, uh, the logic behind the, the big lie. No reasonable moral person would believe a state or entity. Entity. Entity? Entity. Entity sounds a little too, I don't know. Uh, so we, we don't believe that they would plan and execute something so egregious on such a massive scale. And Hitler talked about this, right? The big lie. So belief limits and moral limits are both restrictions and tools of the manipulator. The manipulator only needs to constrain what they want the target to believe to be within those limits. Otherwise, they'll lose them. 
So what they want the target to ignore, they are free to do outside of those limits. Like, uh, for example, the actions or methodologies of the manipulators. They could probably uh, do a podcast on the actual uh, motives, uh, maybe not motives, but uh, methodologies uh, of manipulators, how they actually do things, and people just wouldn't believe it. I don't believe they'll do that, right? You could explicitly, overtly explain everything. And this is sort of the the trope of the 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 globalist uh, hegemonic um, morons who who openly write books about their plans and what they're going to do. Right? They they don't care because they think the public just won't believe it anyways. Right? So the bigger their plans, the less the public is to believe it. So. We are blind to these facts based on our limits of, you know, morals and and belief. So are those blind spots based on stereotypes that we have? Absolutely not. That that is a non sequitur. So the the premise of that question is, you know, nonsense. Our morals, what we that is what we believe is right and wrong are not based on a conclusion which is based on insufficient sample size, which is the definition of a stereotype. However, do we use stereotypes or are we sort of predisposed to? Well, most likely, right? The 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 whole thing with um heuristics and and uh and and sometimes we don't have enough data. So we have to, if the time if there's a time crunch and we have to make a decision based on something. Sometimes we might just say, well, there's not enough information. I have to make a decision. But realizing it might not be the right one, right, that, it, that it's critical, right? But sometimes it doesn't matter. We have to make the decision and act, right, if there's not enough time. So is that based on stereotype? Well, yes, because we're, we're, well, not really, because a stereotype is you're making a judgment on an entire thing, right? So it's it's subtly different. So do our stereotypes cause blind spots or false connections? Can a stereotype cause apophenia? Well, it appears so. So can a uh, apophenia cause a stereotype? Well, that would make sense, right? If you're suffering from making the condition of, of seeing meaningful false connections or there aren't any, then yeah, that, that could lead you down to the path to being more susceptible to making stereotypes, especially if you're not thinking about how you're thinking. Right, so can a uh, stereotype be capitalized to uh, amplify apophenia and, and make further erroneous judgments? Apparently. And that's what Bernays claims PR should do as a method of manipulation. Not uh, appeal to reason and judgment as those lead to truth. As, uh, you know, uh, as truth is inconsequential to the manipulator. Now, it may not be inconsequential. They, they might try to manipulate you to not believe the truth. So in that situation, it is of consequence. Right? They don't want you to know the truth. Now, it's irrelevant most of the time. They just don't want you to believe A, whatever the story may be. It might be true. It might be false. They don't care. They just want you to believe B, which is whatever the client wants in order to make more money or have more power. So I wouldn't say manipulators are smarter than your average human, but they definitely think differently. So one could argue they aren't manipulating people based on the target's honesty. They're manipulating people based on the target's use of stereotypes and what kind of retrobate thinks in stereotypes. You might think that I meant to say uh, reprobate, 
as in somebody who is uh, morally corrupt. But uh, I use the correct word, retrobate, which is someone who thinks uh, in an archaic mode of thought. (laughs) So the truth and what we perceive and believe are two different concepts. So what we perceive and what we believe and the truth, the truth is a separate entity to what we see and what we believe, right? So uh, not what we see, but well, it is what we see, what we perceive. Now, how we interpret things is how we see them, right? So as a Venn diagram, they would be like two separate circuits, circuits, circles, Um, you know, or perhaps, you know, with some interlap, (laughs) Or maybe even a, at times they uh, they might align to make a single circle on specific topics, and they perfectly line up line up line up over top of each other. But uh, there's no um, force or guarantee that they will line up at all. PR has no interest in what is true, only what is effective in manipulating others' perceptions, their modes of thought, beliefs, and opinions. Bernays claims from a uh, practical standpoint, uh, it is tremendously difficult to affect or change stereotypes or to attempt to substitute one set of stereotypes for another. So it's not just a matter of a stereotype, it's a set of stereotypes. But notice Bernays is not interested in all in removing stereotypes. He's just interested in manipulating them. (laughs) So more evidence that the idea of a valid argument with sound reasoning is alien, or at least of no consequence to the PR professional. It's also interesting that Bernays wrote affect and not effect. Affect is one of those words. I usually just think of affect as an emotion, uh, emotion, as in affectionate or to cause change. The sun affected my skin with the effect of a sunburn, which affected me greatly. The effect of which was anger, which was an affect. (laughs) Right? So I don't know if I'm even using it right, but that's how I interpret affect versus effect. Right? So affect can cause change, and effect are the results the effects versus affect, right? So the sun affected my skin. It caused the change. So effect can be an emotional response or something which causes change, right? Effect is the result. Or affect can also be the result if it's an emotional response. So Bernays is saying it's difficult to cause change in stereotypes, which is apparently necessary for changing opinions. So it would obviously be left to the PR professional. So this bit is just his trying to sell PR once again to the reader. Bernays then refers to some Mr. Martin dude who wrote a volume on the behavior of crowds, which sounds an awful lot like uh, Gustave Le Bon's book, The Crowd. But this guy wrote about the behavior of crowds, which is the subject of Le Bon's book. See my last podcast, the episode 36 on the crowd. So Bernays is uh, accepting the premise of the Gustavian crowd as a real entity. I suppose in this case, it would be called a Martinian crowd since it's the guy Martin 
who's coming up with the concept. And Bernays jumps in with the Gustavian style of assertions with no evidence, of course. Though this uh, Mr. Martin claims his models of crowds are based on instinct, whereas we all know Gustav explicitly claimed his crowd act in opposition to their instinct. Other than that, they appear to be the same beast of their fantasies. So Mr. Martin has a... Uh, a dog shit argument that the crowd sacrifices individual freedoms to be part of the group and that this sacrifice leads to their ignoring of logic and resisting change in the group code. So what is, uh, what is this, right? What, what if the crowd is about change, right? Uh, what what is this this group code specifically that he's talking about, and how are they ignoring logic specifically? Right, this is another one of those. If they don't ignore logic, they aren't a Martinian crowd type bullshit, right? So, it, which is a fallacy. So you're making this claim. Obviously, either they do or they don't, and he doesn't have any evidence to prove it. Just assertions. So. The, the, uh, the claim is all crowds are close-minded and resilient to change and reason. At least these guys do touch on critical thinking, calling it the critical habit of mind, and then dismiss it as apparently the crowd believes critical thinking is a, as destructive to their own crowd as the other's crowd. <laughs> that very well may be true if these crowds are these morons, right? And if they're defined as being uh, based on illogical thought, then the uh, critical thinking would, of course, be destructive to that construct. <laughs> is the claim that the crowd is delusional, knows it, and doesn't want the illusion of their uh, fantasy to be popped or destroyed? They want to live in the fantasy. And deep down, they know that logic and critical thinking will destroy it. You know, blow up their Garden of Eden by eating the uh, from the tree of, of knowledge. So now there seems to be multiple crowds, all with the same uh, logically flawed thinking, which they are apparently unaware of, but embrace the logic of stereotype anyways because they believe being astute will destroy their society. Seriously, this is the claim, right? So who would choose to live in a bogus crowd knowing it's bogus and turn their back on accurately assessing things for your own advantage? Do they think that reality is a video game or something like that and they are scared that it will end if they learn too much, if they know the truth, you know? Who knows? Maybe they're right. That's that theory, um, the holodeck theory, whatever they call it. Is it the holodeck theory? hologram theory. So according, according to Bernays, Martin thinks the main satisfaction the individual derives from his group association is the satisfaction of his vanity through creation of an enlarged self-importance. So it's not about fear or the collapse of their world or group or whatever. It's about inflated self-importance. So my alarm bells are going at this point. You know, one of the techniques to uh, abusive manipulation and conditioning is to attack the target's pride, their feeling of self-importance. 
And uh, wouldn't you feel less self-important if you're giving up your identity to a crowd? That would mean you are no longer important. You're just another cog in the machine of whatever that crowd happens to be. So we, we are all as individuals extremely important. Only manipulators try to make you think otherwise. So what makes you so important, right? Well, existence. Just being is sufficient to make us all important. Though arrogance, conceit, and elitism are cancers to our humanity, and those who allow those monsters to grow do so at great cost. Elitism feeds off of one's humanity, and the more elite one feels, the less human they are. Martin claims people knowingly and willingly turn their back on critical thinking and being astute in exchange for being in a crowd, which somehow enlarges their individual self-importance. How could being in a group make one feel more important about themselves? It's a non sequitur, unless they have such low self-esteem that they think, well, look, I'm a member of this group, so I am that group. I'm not just some you know, little nobody guy. I'm that group. But you're not that group. Right? You, If you're a member of a group, you might be a part of that, a member, but you aren't that group. So I was going to say bogus assertions, you know, sans evidence. But then I thought perhaps that is what mot- motivates people to join, you know, like biker gangs or secret societies or, or the police you know, or any group, right? That is, they're basing their identity on the group as opposed to themselves. But that's just a random dot, you know, connecting um, on my part. And it would only be for people who need uh, a group to make themselves to, you know, feel important, assuming people want to feel more important. But I still call bullshit. Yes, we are a pack animal, but joining a pack would be more for a, a sense of belonging, perhaps security or connections than it would be for inflating oneself importance. If everyone you care about is in your pack, how would you feel more important than them? Or uh, if it's only uh, for effect for those outside of your pack, what do you care what they think? It's not a very logical, doesn't make sense, right? So the only reason to join a secret society is to hide what you're doing to the outside world. It's not to, uh, maybe it does give you a sense of feeling important because you know stuff that other people don't know, I guess, I don't know. Bernays interprets Martin's assertions are uh, reliant on Freudian theories. Well, there we have it. Freud was an idiot. Anything built on garbage is just more garbage piled higher and deeper. Here Bernays is using the fallacious appeal to Freud's name, a fallacious appeal to authority as opposed to evidence to prove the specified points. Bernays claims all this reasoning, this this bullshit reasoning, leads to the conclusion, sans reasoning, that suppression of news applies equally to the suppression of the individual desire. <laughs> what? So he's saying all this, this garbage reasoning claims uh, or leads to the conclusion that suppression of news applies equally to the suppression of individual desire. That is a serious non sequitur. Suppression of news does not equal suppression 
of individual desire. While suppression of a free press is clearly a bad thing, in Bernays' world, the press is not a free press. It is an organ of manipulation where even the desires of the public are programmed by it. This guy is so full of shit. After equating suppressed news with suppressed individual desire, Bernays claims neither can be suppressed. <laughs> All right. So immediately after asserting individual desire cannot be suppressed, claims the result of the this social suppression produces an individual who conforms to the standards of his group and enables him to remain comfortably in it. <laughs> Pick a lane. Right. He's either squirrely to get the reader, you know, off balance, which is a known manipulation technique, or he's just insane. He's not rational. Bernays inconsistent internal logic, notwithstanding humans do restrict our instincts in a society, sometimes less than others, Chicago, Baltimore, DC. Bernays then uh, quotes Martin who describes the crowd but uh, we could see it as an accurate description of the PR ilk and look at to their childhood, right? Every crowd gives itself airs, speaks with oracular finality, regards itself as morally superior and lord it over everyone. It sounds like Martin and Bernays have an issue with people who are morally superior, morally superior. And it makes sense. If they grew up uh, as sub-moral, uh, sub-humans, other kids would recognize that and call them out. Now, I'm trying to, you know, socially, what, what's the, psychoanalyze them, right? As adults, they now cry about others who lord their moral superiority over them. Schmucks. Now, I don't think anybody would have a problem with people who are morally superior, Right depending on their morals, I guess, right? Now, this is the problem. People start saying morals are subjective. And that's the, the, the lane the PR people take. So Bernays, Martins, and Laban's baseless assertions as truths are speaking with oracular finality and the dehumanizing of their fellow humans as Martinian and Gustavian crowds is regarding themselves as morally superior. I don't think they are actually describing others as much as they're describing themselves. You know, a danger all writers risk. So I'm sure their mentor, Freud, would agree, you know, or not. He's an idiot, so who knows, right? Bernays claims nothing so easily catches general attention and grips a crowd as a contest of any kind. So can we interpret... Uh, Contests to mean conflict. So stereotype also now apparently means contests. <laughs> so this is a, an overgeneralization to claim all crowds are drawn to a contest or conflict. I added conflict because that's the natural interpretation just to firm it up a little bit, right? We know there are different types of people or even moods from, you know, pugnacity to conflict aversion pugnacity or pugnacious, pugnacious, meaning those times when we are looking for conflict or we're looking for argument, or perhaps we're looking for a good debate. But a lot of times the word just means people who are, 
you know, argumentative as in uh, caustic, not argumentative as in, you know, looking for a, a good debate. <laughs> so Bernays uses stereotype, <clears throat> but it's not even an overgeneralization based on insufficient sample size. It is not even gathered empirically. It is just a hypothetical fantasy, which is treated as objectively real. And worse, other stereotypes are spun off of that false foundation. So it is pure garbage. Bernays says the successful member in a contest crows over the loser. Sounds like Bernays was defeated and was a sore loser uh, or always lost to poor winners, perhaps, and attributes his anecdotal interpretation as a stereotype of the general public. We all know sore losers and poor winners, but that is not everyone or even those people all of the time. There are gracious winners and gracious losers. Sometimes we are gracious and other times we may be like Brene's inconsiderate trash. <laughs> like in karate, it's more enjoyable losing uh, to a better fighter than defeating an opponent who could not fight very well. That's my experience. So Bernays writes, uh, success enables the winning crowd to crow over, implying anybody would if they could. So this reveals Bernays' values as those of a failed human with garbage character. As children, we are all um, intractable and sometimes act like assholes, some more than others, but one would expect uh, that as mature adults, we would have the grace of character to not be so petty as Bernays. We, uh, we know there are a lot of petty, failed humans as adults, like Justin Trudeau, but I'm assuming and hoping that is not the norm. It sounds like a, uh, an after-school special, but the, uh, the powerful have no need to crow over their defeated competitors. Even if we call out, you know, assholes and, and trash talkers, we're still being petty. It's, it's commonly known that if competitors are closely matched, mercy cannot be shown or it will be capitalized on, and the one showing mercy will be destroyed. Showing mercy is a luxury reserved for the vastly dominant competitor. That's why bullies on the playground, in politics, religion, or in the courtroom demand their targets beg for mercy. It's all about power. If a competitor clearly shows mercy, then they are claiming absolute power and dominion over their competitor. If they do it from a position of weakness, they are vulnerable to be destroyed. So mercy is defined as a kind assistance or a compassionate treatment for someone who is undeserving of it. <laughs> that's, that's the definition of mercy, someone who is undeserving of it. <laughs> who wrote that definition, right? Whether one deserves mercy or not, it's, it's, it's not, shouldn't be baked into the definition. So my definition of mercy is not destroying a competitor with maximum pain. Now, pain can be mental, cognitive, emotional, social, or in extreme cases, physical pain. So mercy kills are a good example. If an animal is terminal or in pain and suffering and there's nothing we can practically do, a mercy kill is the moral course of action to cease the animal's suffering. Minimizing pain is a show of mercy, though sometimes we need pain to grow. 
different levels of pain, right? The cognitive pain of learning, you know, difficult things is not something a parent should be merciful about, or we should be merciful about to ourselves, protecting ourselves or our children from the pain of learning math or, or valid logic and reason is not beneficial to us or them. So getting back to Bernays, that is stereotypical belief that no one is gracious. Again, this is a reflection of his values and, and not those of the targets. Maybe they're the values that he wants the target to have. I don't know. Perhaps in the context of manipulation, Bernays is describing the stereotype of asshole that he can target successfully or that is exploitable. Maybe this is what he's doing, right? He claims this crowing over the defeated becomes symbolical and is utilized by the ego to enhance its feeling of importance. Notice he writes its feeling. This is again dehumanization. If the ego is a non-human entity, uh, which should warrant it being called it, then how does it have feeling which requires consciousness? If it can feel, it is they, it is not an it. So Bernays claims this egoism takes form in the desire for dominance, sort of a, a chicken and the egg scenario. It appears the desire for dominance comes from those who can't deal with bullies. And we all experience bullies and, you know, probably have been at times as well. So to be honest, the, the person I know who was the biggest sore loser wasn't bad in sports or academics, though she truly is a failed human when it comes to the quality of character. Oddly enough, her father appeared to me to be a really nice guy, though her mom appeared to be a real fake snake in the grass. So this sore loser character nature from, you know, is it from her genetics or nurture, presumably from her mom or a bit of both? I don't know. This, uh, this chick would literally sulk and get an upset stomach every time she would start losing at any game, board game, whatever, you know, it, 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 she would, she sucked all the color and enjoyment out of competition, like a wet blanket. And she was also physically violent. There were several times I witnessed it, but probably the, 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 the best was, was secondhand. I worked with one of her old boyfriends and he told me how she beat him up at his work when he dumped her. This guy even deleted the security footage so none of his coworkers would see it. <laughs> Though he was he was really young back then. I think he might have been teenager or like late teens, and uh, he had no talking about it years later when we worked together. But uh, people find things uh, find things funny that are uh, outside of what is what is expected, you know, outside of what is what is the norm. And uh, when Buddy told me the story, we were uh, up in the Arctic. And there were about four or five of us in the helicopter and this group of tired, normally silent uh, dudes from all corners of the country erupted into laughter for about 10 minutes after <laughs> he told that story over the headset. So so this evidence of, of that her behavior is well outside of the, the limits of normalcy. Otherwise, nobody would have laughed. They said, yeah, that's how they are. But it's just not. So this was not normal behavior on her part for beating him up, for dumping her. Uh, but for, for whatever reason or reasons, her behavior did not fully develop into a, you know, full-fledged human. 
she she behaves in a more primitive, savage, unevolved way, even though academically she's uh, well-educated. But uh, Bernays acts as if everyone has the same character, which is clearly not the case. Perhaps in his day or in his circle uh, or, you know, in the PR crowd, right, the, the less evolved character was the norm. Bernays quotes uh, this uh, Martin, who claims the desire to dominate is why cult leaders or any other movement uh, leaders always claim they are the winners. We are the winners, right? Because the sounds like uh, Ben Stiller's character in uh, the movie Dodgeball. Uh, what was that, Jim, called? The, uh, the Cobras. So Bernays cites Martin, who pretty much clones what Gustav Laban asserts about the crowd being not limited to any demographic, class, or intelligence. Martin writes, any class may behave and think as a crowd. So I'm assuming he actually means any individual of any class and not the whole class, but maybe not. These goofballs act and plan as if classes are all monoliths of sameness and all classes do behave and think as their hypothetical crowd. So although Gustav flip-flopped about the crowd, at least Martin explicitly claims the crowd is not just a physical agglomeration. They can be solitary readers of ads, letters, listeners of radio, and readers of newspaper, and still be mysteriously part of the crowd mind. It would appear uh, to be more accurate to call the crowd mind the meme mind. M-E-M-E, meme, meme <laughs> It's kind of uh, idiotic to define a solitary individual to be part of a crowd when they are alone. So meme mind is more apt, uh, a more apt description of the model, I think. So another thing Bernays shares with Gustave uh, Laban is his arrogance of class, which is not surprising since he continuously thinks in stereotype. He writes the crowd mind or meme mind, as I'm starting uh, starting to call it, as I'll start to call it, is shared among the brotherhoods of the lower classes and among the well-bred fraternal orders of successful business and professional men. <laughs> so he cites the, the meme mind of the Ku Klux Klan as some of the best families among their supporters. <laughs> He did. So clearly his point in context is what he considers the best families among their supporters. Clearly his, his, uh, yeah, you know, I agree this meme mind or, or crowd think is, is just uncritical. Exploitable minds which have no apparent demographic bounds as, as we are apparently all vulnerable to it. So our hubris is, you know, knowing we are right. That's the biggest chink in our cognitive armor. So hubris, of course, is the self-confidence to the point of error. Hubris is closely tied to the uh, exaggerated sense of one's abilities, which we call arrogance. So we see people overconfident in their abilities quite often, and they usually fail. Those, uh, you know, those sometimes they, they do beat the odds and win. Hubris and arrogance are both due to fallacious thinking. I'm not claiming, claiming self-confidence is wrong. It's a great thing. But when it's at the point uh, where it allows error, 
uh, we have gone too far. Balance judgment based on objective facts and abilities, not fantasies and arrogance. Don't let overconfidence be used as a tool against you. But sometimes a dash of arrogance with perhaps a little bit of daring is beneficial. Local boy uh, near Pilt, near Neil Peart wrote, Innocence gave me confidence to go up against reality. And it worked for him. If you have a choice between daring and fear, fortune favors the bold. The whole issue is based around cognition, the mental process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. The problem arises when we ignore knowledge can be false. And, and as can understanding, we make sense and interpret things wrong all the time. The hubris and arrogance of fools are the playthings for Marxist indoctrinators or any ideology for that matter. Just because we can make sense of something, make some connections, does not make it true, as the history of science and religions have demonstrated. We instinctively uh, teach our children falsehoods like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy because they are fun and it's a life lesson for our spawn as they get older and realize not everything they believed or were told is true. Now, I think we might do this instinctively as for that lesson. We may not. It might just be, you know, something else. But uh, if we redefine the crowd to be the uncritical who think in stereotypes, then Bernays' points might carry more weight. But that's not how they define the crowd. He defines the crowd as a state of mind which permeates society and its individuals at almost all times. So Bernays is talking about a state of mind, not an individual or a mass of people, but a state of mind. So Bernays' crowd is a state of mind. Even by Bernays and Martin's own definitions, the de definition of the crowd is not accurate. So why don't they choose better, more accurate uh, names or terms? Probably because Gustave Le Bon chose it 35 years earlier and Bernays chose to utilize the existing or established beliefs and then modify them to what he wants, which is what his M.O. is. So he took the then common expression, the crowd, which Gustave Le Bon redefined and further redefined it to mean state of mind, which, you know, what's, what's important for us to understand is that Bernays and his ilk are targeting our state of mind. He claims what is present in one's mind uh, most of the times is articulated in times of stress or great excitement. So this, this exposition of one's True thoughts is somehow an expression of why people are so positive or sure about their opinion and why they are so intolerant to culinary, culinary, contrary views. So this, this is a load of, of hogwash, uh, claptrap. Even if one does articulate their true values in moments of great excitement, that does not mean that they differ from their views when they are calm or that everyone is hiding their true opinions or even more of a non sequitur that that is somehow evidence of how sure they are about their views, or even if they are intolerant of contrary views. Bernays is tripping around the concepts of critical thinking without calling it what it is. He's doing some convoluted dance where he's trying to act as if it's a given that his bullshit perceptive is an accepted truth. He recognizes the value of not being 
uh, falsely positive about one's opinions or falsely sure, right, or being intolerant to contrary views. But he's completely ignoring the concept of valid evidence or the reasoning one uses to come up with views, or some do, or, or what one would expect to or accept to change them. PR is not a science towards the truth. It is an art of deception. This is this is a critical thing, right? I, I keep forgetting sometimes, you know, public relations is not about seeking the truth. <laughs> it is about deceiving and manipulating people to believe a certain perspective. So an art, uh, one would assume it'd be more advantageous to recognize the truth and the tools to attain it. But he's apparently trying to sell PR and clearly thinks his targets, uh, his target audience of so-called elites do not have those skills. Or perhaps he honestly does not believe that there is truth, only deception and money, which would make him an icky piece of shit. <laughs> so claptrap, that's a funny word. It, it, it's an interesting meaning. It's something meant to elicit applause, the clap trap, right? It sounds a whole lot less old timey when you know what the definition actually is, right? Dwight Schrute from the office had it figured out when he gave his, uh, his acceptance speech for some sales award, hammering the podium, you know, vague formula, emotional tones of voice, zero content equal great speech, <laughs> If anybody remembers that episode, but back to Bernays, just because someone is thinking, uh, something doesn't mean it's not wrong, right? Or that it is wrong. That his suppressed premise, when he says excited people expose what, what's really on their mind, right? And, and how exposition of what one is thinking is evidence of intolerance is also a mystery. So it's easy to imagine or picture some straw man that exposes an opinion uh, that they were hiding when calm and are arrogant about their correctness and intolerant to conflicting ideas. But this is just a straw man. This is just a complete fabrication of a close-minded bigot. And it's not the definition of people. <laughs> Remember this, right? One phenomenon does not cause the other. It is very fallacious reasoning on Bernays' part. So what causes one to be intolerant of opposing ideas is the undeveloped character and reasoning of the individual. Some people may be genetically blocked from developing their character and reasoning. I don't know, but the manipulator class of Bernays does not want them to. Like I said earlier, it appears Bernays is not targeting the astute people who question and demand valid evidence and transparency. Bernays is ignoring astute people and is targeting those exploitable enough to be manipulated by their cognitive vulnerabilities. I keep getting snagged on this quest for truth versus manipulation. I have a hard time coming to grips with the mode of thought that it is not interested in truth. The truth has no consequence to the deceiver. It's quite obvious, but it's hard to get over that someone could have no interest in what is true. I get how some lawyers might fall into whatever can be legally proved as truth, as the law is more of a game than fact-finding, but my experience is those who know, um, who I know, who work in the law, are keenly aware that there's a difference between what is true and what can be proven. I guess that's why career criminals call it 
the life of crime or the game, or maybe that's the only, uh, it might only be in movies, but life imitates art. So I'm confident that there's someone out there who at least mimics things like that. Bernays targets are targeted because they have the cognitive vulnerabilities of his crowd, which we are all in danger of being if we are not cognitively vigilant and astute and realize no matter how confident we are, we may still be wrong. It's ironic that thinking we might be wrong is a defense against manipulation. It allows us to preemptively accept new proofs and let go of weaker, though still cogent, arguments. This process, of course, includes being alert for logical fallacies. Bernays claims the uh, college professor in his study on a peaceful summer day is just as likely to be reacting as a unit of a crowd mind. Recall his definition of uh, as is a state of mind as any member of a lynching party. So the college professor in his study on a peaceful summer day is just as likely to be reacting as a unit of a crowd mind as any member of a lynching party. I agree though he's implying the lynching party is unjustified. And while likely so, it may be justified. Humans can be monsters, and some deserve to be lynched. (laughs) So it wasn't an angry mob with pitchforks that burned the witches, right? It was the experts and the leaders of society, the judges in in the courts of law, and and the religious leaders. Isn't it odd that we've been... conditioned or it's it's been spun to be the fault of the crowd and not of the actual people who were responsible, the experts, the politicians, the religious leaders, the judges. It wasn't the mob of people with pitchforks and, and torches. So the people en masse have a difficult time defending themselves as it starts with a, a lone voice. And it, it may or may not catch on. The crowd has to first realize they need defending which is a tall order. So Bernays writes that Mr. Trotter, Mr. Kata, discusses the underlying causes and results of herd tendencies, stressing cohesiveness. This ought to be interesting. The causes as determined by someone who knowingly thinks fallaciously in stereotype. It's not that these guys are using sound logic to determine who their exploitable targets are. These goofballs are using crap logic. <laughs> That PR has any impact is a miracle, especially with idiots like these guys as their gurus. Just listen to this crap. The predominant point of view, an assertion, according to Mr. Trotter, which translates a rationalized point of view using fallacious reasoning into an axiomatic truth. The predominant point of view, according to Mr. Trotter, which translates a rationalized point of view into an axiomatic truth. So I have to stop here. Axiom is something uh, regarded as established, accepted, or self-evidently true. So to call it an axiomatic truth implies he is aware that axioms may not be the truth. Just because something is an axiom does not mean that it is true. It's only regarded as true. So Bernays and Trotter are trying to convince us of something here. What is it? What are they trying to convince us of? The predominant point of view derives its strength from the fact that it enlists or uses herd support for the point of view of the individual. 
So logical fallacy of appeal to the crowd as proof. <laughs> Bernays is claiming the strongest point of view uses crowd support to convince the individual. Predominant may not mean strongest. It just means the most prevalent, the most common. Again, PR are not concerned with the prevalent view being true or not, or initially even if most people believe it, only that it appears that most people believe it. That is sufficient to fool exploitable targets, exploitable targets who are ignorant of the fallacious appeal to the mob. As a critical thinker, most people believe something is not sufficient proof to sway. But manipulators don't need even that. They just need the illusion or impression that the mob think X and the non-critical sheep will line up with the herd, right? So this is what they're, they're, they're arguing. So the, the fallacy of the bandwagon. I think it's actually called the fallacious appeal to the masses, which is literally what Bernays is doing, which we should know is an established logical fallacy. And Trotter makes another non sequitur or claim that does not follow his premise when he writes, this, uh, this bandwagon explains why it is so easy to popularize many ideas. How does a lot of people thinking, you know, something in a, in a way indicate how easy it is to popularize an idea? Again, these schmucks are disregarding whether it is true or not. So I have to interpret what he actually means. Uh, the bandwagon fallacy makes it easy to sway targets. I think that's what he's actually trying to say. It appears that his logic is the, uh, is that since a lot of people believe something, then simply claiming that a lot of people believe it is confirming proof for that class of targets, which is clearly false logic, but that doesn't mean that fallacious appeals to the masses don't have any effect. So it's, it's just that his reasoning is wrong, which is not surprising. So Trotter claims the, the herd is homogenous. I'm assuming he's using the, the herd and the crowd interchangeably now. So, of course, an uncritical thinker that is, you know, consciously uses the fallacious logic of stereotype would stereotype a group of people as homogenous. So this is their, their modus operandi, fallacious stereotypes. It's the fallacious logic of stereotype, and they literally don't know any better. Well, of course, thinking that they do. <laughs> Astute people don't want to use the fallacious logic of stereotype, but as exploitable targets, this is exactly what Bernays is looking for. Odd that he's apparently one himself. Then we got some BS biological significance of homogeneity as essential for survival as the wolf pack as a group, a group, a group proves. So red flags should be going up for this one, right? Even these guys earlier recognized that there's this, a distinction between numbers and homogeneity. So a group by the fact that it is a group is not proof or even evidence of homogeneity beyond being a member of that group. But these idiots willingly think in stereotype. In fact, wolf packs are notorious for their non-homogeneity, specifically for their hierarchy, the alpha, the beta, beta, the omega, all that crap came from the study of wolf packs. So is Bernays claiming wolves have the same opinions and beliefs because they hunt together? He doesn't even mention the working together in a hunt. I'm being generous and charitable by allowing that to be an inference to what he meant 
which he may not have, <laughs> right? All kinds of people within groups work together with shared goals, have diverse opinions and beliefs and values. Look at any workforce. Tell me you have the same opinion as the asshole in your office. Perhaps Bernays' point uh, would be better illustrated with tribalism, but even then it's not necessary for survival as Bernays asserts. He needs to be explicit. Homogeneity of what? Homogeneity of membership to a family or pack is not the same concept as homogeneity of fallacious thinking. Neither prove or are evidence of the other. He writes, the pack is many times stronger than the individual's combined strength. So working as a team in no way implies unity of beliefs and opinions beyond the shared goal. A football team, a football team's members all have a unique mixture of opinions and beliefs. Though the team can work together, they can work together as a team. That they can work together in a team no way implies anything about their beliefs and opinions. He's conflating distinct concepts, shared goals with shared beliefs. Five people may work together to push a car out of a ditch, but beyond their shared goal of pushing the car out, there is nothing we can infer about their beliefs, be that on whether we should eat more bacon or how long a woman's hair should be. He claims these results of homogeneity have created the herd point of view. No. Is there a herd point of view uh, which we are to assume is the crowd mind, which he redefined earlier, to the state of mind? This is the uh, circular reasoning fallacy. The herd has the same point of view because it is homogenous. The homogeneity of the herd creates the herd point of view. <laughs> you see the, right? They define the crowd as a state of mind. A state of mind of how many? How do they know who has what state of mind? They claim the so-called herd is a homogenous point of view. Who then is the so-called herd and how do they know who is in it? Right? Is this point of view fallacious or factual? This is the question that is never asked by the manipulator. They are implying, implying this, uh, this so-called herd has a point of view that the manipulator may be interested in changing, and they argue the point of view of the mob is purely from the mob, circular reasoning of the chicken and the egg. What matters from our perspective is PR will try to use fallacious appeals to the masses because they believe that works. Now, Bernays is conflating being among a group with homogeneity. It is self-evident that people associate uh, who don't share all of their beliefs. Heterogeneous social groups exist. He equates homogeneity with security, which as we learned during the potato famine, homogeneity is not equivalent to safe. I'm not going to explain the whole the concept of monocrops. Bernays makes yet another false assertion uh, unfounded by evidence or logic. He claims due to fear of loneliness, a desire for identification with the herd uh, in matters of opinion, we have an impulse to segregate society into classes, compelled for support of the herd within a herd. So considering social classes are not based on opinions, unless he's conflating the class structure of society with some suppressed new definition of class, which is based on opinions and not education and social class or social status. And since he explicitly wrote clouds, clouds, 
<laughs> speaking Thai, since he explicitly wrote that crowds are not constrained by or affected by education or economic st- uh, status, we have to assume he's using some other definition, which means he is using a variant of the fallacy of equivocation, which is using a word in an argument with more than one meaning. But here he's using some unknown implicit definition of the word. Trotter writes of the herd opinion. The effect of it will clearly make acceptable those suggestions which are from the herd and those only. More bullshit. Unfounded unfounded assertion sandproof. People do indeed fall for the fallacious appeals uh, to the masses. But I don't know of anyone whose only opinions are those from the same or some group which, you know, they may or may not exist. Some perceived phantom crowd that the exploited target belongs to. Perhaps if I knew some douchebag from Portland who was an Antifa drone, but uh, thankfully I don't know any of them personally. (laughs) I could see the power of this mechanism as an attack, as it is used with great effect when framed as the group that believes in science believes X. So it's a fallacious appeal to the name of the valid concept Uh, not the concept itself, that fools who believe they are more astute than they are, i.e. the arrogant and the hubris, the hubric, easily fall for. So this can be done with any group or concept the target wants to associate with, be it celebrity, profession, idol, artist, religion, I don't know. It's sort of like the the no true Scotsman type thing, right? This is not just uh, Olympic uh, gold medalist, Judy Crotch eats Jeevy uh, peanut butter. It is that, but it's it's a little stronger. The the anonymous science community believe you should shit in your mouth. The target falls for the fallacious appeal, doesn't want to be seen as a rube, and therefore eats their own shit, right? And puts a video of it on social media and scoffs at those who do not eat their own shit as rubes. <laughs> right? Or worse, begins to hate those who don't fall for the obvious fallacious appeals to the name of something, right? I have witnessed uh, minds perform convoluted uh, cognitive gymnastics when exposed to valid proofs contrary to their manipulation and rarely acknowledgement uh, of, of, being an, uh, of being wrong, right? Though that likelihood may go up with time, I don't know. No one wants to admit that they put shit in their mouth, right? Or admit to the hatred and vitriol that they fired at those who ended up being correct, right? It's not that those who are correct are are so due to some random chance, especially when they clearly spelled out the evidence or lack thereof used to justify their suspicions or not being convinced by lies or simply asking questions, right? It's not even a matter of being right. It's a matter of just not falling for it and simply asking questions, valid questions. With manipulation, the truth often comes out eventually. There should be some sort of buyer's remorse remorse on the part of the exploited targets. who you would expect to try to learn defensive skills to prevent this from happening again. But no one seems to be researching logical fallacies, critical thought, and generally defense against the dark arts of manipulation, which indicates the targets are either incapable, don't care, unaware, or enter some form of denial or perhaps something else. How do manipulators keep their targets from being aware they were manipulated after the truth comes out? Is it some form of delusion? Mark Twain wrote... It's easier to fool people than convince them that they've been fooled. Perhaps the the larger lie, the the greater 
the coping delusion we apply, right? The, uh, is that even the coping delusion? Would that be perhaps a concept? The coping delusion. I like that. So the less critical we are, the more exploitable we are, and perhaps the more likely to cope (laughs) with a coping delusion, right? Using delusions, you know, just as uh, a speculation, a supposition, a conjecture, a postulation, a hypothesis. It is uh, really easy to be delusional if one is not self-critical of our beliefs and opinions. So what's the evidence? Is it valid? Was it a best guess? Did I use statistics? Did I fall for a fallacy? Can I handle if the truth is the opposite of what I believe? Trotter claims people are responsive to crowd opinions by instinct and notoriously insensitive to suggestions of experience. <laughs> right? Is that, was that what he's saying? By experience, he cites an example of how reluctant people were to adapt or accept the new technology of steam engines. This is how far back we're going. So stereotype of the people as a monolith, right? We all know there are innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. Also, if anyone were a, a monolith that were reluctant to adopt steam engine technology, who were the people who came up with the innovation and promoted it? Clearly, people willing to to adopt it, right? So it's not a monolith. So self-refuting logic on the uh, of the propagandist is everywhere. You could try to claim that uh, you know a literal interpretation of what he claimed, and you'd be right. That is literally what he claimed. <laughs> the natural interpretation is the same as the literal in this cause, cause, case. It's uh, it's clearly. Uh, deceptive and unreasonable to claim people are notoriously insensitive to innovation. Not some people, not a class of laggards who today we figure only make up around 15 or 16% of the population. 34% on average are late majority and the remaining 50% of the population are pro-innovation. So the natural interpretation of his claim is false. Trotter is conflating adopting a new tech with experience and Reality refutes his claim as steam engines were not only adopted and accepted, they were literally a revolution. (laughs) A revolution. So the crowd obviously did accept it. You might argue he's referring to some initial resistance to change. I agree, there's a tendency of some people to resist change. But stats indicate that that is an unnuanced or obtuse claim. With a substantial bulk of people being innovators, early adopters, and early majority. It appears that where one is on the spectrum of adoption of new technology is perhaps organic in nature, but a condition that could be manipulated by the likes of Bernays and Trotter as the sheep lining up for their new Apple products made by slaves in China attests. Perhaps this is his point, but from a simpleton, uh, stereotypical frame of reference. PR claiming everyone is initially this state and everyone can be changed to a target state, right? School report cards prove that hypothesis is wrong. Bernays and Trotter are, Trotter, yeah, Trotter are clearly referring to a subset of society and they should know better if they ever read a book. As far as the ancient Greeks, we had iconoclasts, those who break icons and icono, what are they called? Iconoduel? Iconoduel? Those who defend the icons. Iconoduel, I think they're pronounced. Iconoclast and Iconoduel. Duel. 
it's D-U-L-E-S, but I think it's pronounced Duel. That Bernays is uh, so un- unsophisticated is, is no surprise. Bernays falsely claims uh, with no evidence that uh, we vote in a certain way because that is how we voted last time. I call bullshit on this. As I started out as a clueless voter that voted for Green or whatever little party was kicking around, and then I became a partisan liberal. Then I observed closer how reprehensible the party leaders are. (laughs) Again, we know Bernays is full of shit with his overgeneralizations as there's a segment of the population known as swing votes who are not, you know, exploited, partisan, useful idiots. They might be exploited, but they are not partisan. That's why they're called swing votes. They're not diehard whatever party, right? If I recall properly, I think... It's roughly around a third of voters who are roughly partisan left and a third of voters who are roughly partisan right. And the remaining two-thirds, the remaining third is the swing votes. Now, this varies, of course, from region to region, riding to riding, whatever. Some places are mostly one party. Some places are mostly other parties. Obviously, it's nuanced, right? Bernays' uncritical assertions are undiscerning and dull, but uh, necessary for us to address as his ideas are the basis for PR the principal school of his manipulation. It's as if this guy is intentionally avoiding rational thought. As as it approaches, he, he deviates around it like uh, a water, a water around a rock, <laughs> a water. This guy, Lippmann, conflates stereotype with archetype. He claims we don't first see, then define. We define, then see. Which you might think, You know, what an insight. We don't see what we don't define. Then you realize it's a little bullshit. An undiscerning simplistic claim that apparently is meant to remove nuance. We we do see phenomena. We try to frame it and name it and perhaps see if there's an existing definition for it. We absolutely have the capacity to comprehend concepts with no name or definition. We often hear, hear people claim they can't describe something, right? We also have the capacity to create uh, an abstract concept and then define it, but we never create the definition first. The concept of the definition must always come first, obviously. Also, definitions are synonymous with archetypes, not stereotypes. People, People often confuse archetype with stereotype because of douchebags like Lippmann and Bernays. Yes, we have a way easier time seeing things that we have the explicit definition of, the archetype of a chair or a face, but some things we see or create may only be chair-like or face-like. Then there's Carl Jung's type of archetypes, the, uh, the literary archetypes or definitions of a type of character which is the definition of a single entity, not a stereotype or class of people based on an insufficient same size. The stereotype of a hero is incorrect. It's the stereo it's the it's the archetype of a hero, not not the the stereotype of a hero. It's the archetype of a hero, the definition of a hero. There is a stereotype of cops who call themselves heroes simply for doing their job, but that's another issue. A stereotype is a false judgment based on overgeneralizations from insufficient sample sizes. There is a vector of attack, 
you know, we know we are given when we are given insufficient data. We don't have time to research or even think about it before we have to make a decision. This is the mechanism for a lot of grifts. You see a person apparently injured, you stop to help, and a gang of savages appear and kill you for the $50 in your wallet, or many variations of this theme. This is the reason why sales douchebags, uh, you know, of all stripes, push you and claim that there's no time to think. Act now, or this great deal will be gone. Don't do your own research. Don't compare it against somebody else. Act now. Right? Failed humans in PR, sales, real estate, politics, journalism, academics, and other areas of manipulation apparently believe the masses are stupid enough to believe or fall for these basic tactics of manipulation. According to the manipulator's reasoning, a la mode stereotype, it is, is if there is any number of public who think or behave X, they all do. It's the, it's the quintessential logic of, of stereotype. Sort of like what I'm doing now to people of certain professions. <laughs> I differentiate them in this example with failed humans in those industries. Not everyone in those industries, only the failed humans in those industries. <laughs> Nuance, right? So though everyone in those industries may be failed humans, I'm not claiming that, right? They might be. I'm not specifically making that claim, right? There has to be some who think, you know, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, right? For for these unearthly ghosts don't appear when everything is well, right? To quote Hamlet, to misquote Hamlet. So what bothers me uh, the most about politicians is how critical and intelligent they can be when they're in opposition. Yet they turn into these, you know, mindless monsters when they get into power, so we have to realize that not everyone shares our values or have the values they signal publicly. Some know better and, and treat all interactions as a power struggle with the ends always justifying any egregious means or acts for the struggle for more power, be that idiot Marxists or greedy power so-called elites, you know, someone of that ilk who has no empathy or, or instinct for the common good, you know, Beats and tides, right? What the hell's that? You know, beats and tides. You know, they would argue that only a fool actually believes in the values of the common good. You know, what they are actually saying is that they are selfish narcissists. No, maybe something much worse, right? Narcissists have a, an excessive admiration of themselves. This, this is beyond that. It, it's a psychopathic disregard for the common good. And, and since we know a civilized common good, like, like a tide raises all ships, this mentality is from pre-tribal unevolved cognitive mode of from pre-human types. Even then there was a common good of the, the family unit or the, the tribe, right? Which even that ancient structure, the, the mental caveman Marxists are explicitly attacking. So this is not just the destruction of civilization in order to build back better some you know, horrible reset. This is literally the destruction of humanity and everything behaviorally that makes us human. Interestingly enough, the subhumans at orgs like the World Economic Forum claim publicly that they want to change what it means to be a human. No vote, no referendum, just whatever evil uh, evocation their money can buy. Power, right? We tend to perceive from the uh, the stereotype of our cultural assets, uh, asserts Littman, right? Notice the weasel word, 
intend. Regardless, we perceive in archetypes, but also beyond. We, we have, you know, had a time when we don't have the words to describe something, as I said earlier. But that is not a uh, form of cognitive retardation. Quite the contrary. It's our observation and recognition of a concept or phenomena which is beyond our current personal schemata, beyond our uh, current individual library of concepts. It's a uh, refutation of Bernays and Lippmann's point that we have to have something defined before we can perceive it, which is obviously wrong, as that logic would mean someone had to teach early humans all the concepts we currently perceive, which begs the question, where did those individuals get their concepts from? Right? That humans learn and create new concepts is beyond question. There is no debate, regardless of what these guys say. Yet these cognitive cavemen from PR argue against it. I'm all for questioning and arguing. It's good to postulate. It's good to question. But to assert with no evidence as true, right? Something that, that does, there's no overpowering evidence, right? This is something we should avoid, obviously, right? That is the definition of gaslighting or lying, right? So for those bizarre freaks who claim there's no such thing as gaslighting, right? Which I think is actually a funny kind of joke. There's no such thing as gaslighting. They're gaslighting you about gaslighting, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're either extreme, you know, uh, idiots, or they are manipulators who know better, or they're just some goofballs with a sense of humor, you know, or they're liars, who knows? Gaslighting, the concept of gaslighting, right? I enjoy the, the irony of their evil, unless they are just joking. So Trotter asserts um, with no evidence that we rationalize our opinions dictated to us by the group. Yes, of course, there are cultural influences on beliefs, but to claim every last soul of a, of a culture shares every opinion is once again the caveman logic of stereotype. The fact that there are conflicts within not only cultures, but down to the family unit proves this claim is a vastly overgeneralized stereotype of bullshit. Trotter claims a fictional woman in a fictional scenario, you know, her uh, thinking fictional thoughts about another fictional woman is an example to be used as evidence for his rationalization. So that is the ultimate multi-layered straw man fallacy. A fictional woman thinking fictional thoughts about another fictional woman, a total fictional scenario. Like it's just layers of straw man bullshit, right? And this is evidence. This is what they use as evidence. So I'm not claiming that, you know, this fictional woman couldn't happen, but this specific incident is a complex fantasy and using a fantasy plausible or not as an example is extremely fallacious thinking. And this grift is used today with great effect. People, especially if it has an emotional trigger, people get worked up. That person, you know, I, I had an argument with, uh, with someone about a hot button topic and she created a fantasy scenario that could happen. And I agreed it could happen. But after reading uh, Gustave Le Bon and his claim that the crowd believe their fabricated examples to be truth, I, I, I figured I'd test the water. So I questioned her. You know the girl in that scenario is not real, right? Like, you know it's she's fabricated. And to my amazement, this, this woman emotionally argued that this fictional girl from a fictional scenario created just moments ago was real. She is real. This woman emotionally argued, she is real. And the debate collapsed and I was not allowed to question her on it anymore. So 
I couldn't believe my ears. I thought literal and figurative interpretations were clearly, you know, separate for all. But when these intense emotions are added, and I don't know exactly why she became so emotional, but that emotional, that that it apparently, uh, that emotion apparently removes the distinction between literal and figurative interpretations. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong about Gustav. Maybe there's some more truth to it, right? So when we speak about something figuratively, people can interpret it as literal and not just as a misinterpretation. So when one tries to clarify, they, they'll dig in and argue that it is literal. It's really scary how people can do this. So this is what Tratter is apparently doing with his fictional woman's thoughts. How could he know what she's thinking, especially if she weren't real? Right. Even if she was real, how would he know what she's thinking? So what she's actually thinking, right? Perhaps this is why he uses the fictional woman. He, as a narrator, is godlike. You know, he's, he's omnipotent. He could declare her fictional thoughts, right? Which is fine. The problem arises when the fairy tale is used as evidence to prove a point. All a fairy tale proves is a scenario which is believable or not on first blush. Prima facie. But that in no way is proof of anything in objective reality. I shouldn't even have to say that out loud, you know, or, or most of this podcast for that matter. Yet here we are. Enter conspiracy theories. Just because something is smeared as a conspiracy theory by those trying to hide conspiracies does not mean that it is false. Conversely, just because a conspiracy theory logically connects the dots of available evidence does not mean that it is true. See my podcast on Phantom Connections or read up on Apophenia's type 1 and 2, not just the 1. So Trotter makes five bullshit assertions which Bernays tries to use as valid evidence, which they are not. I only repeat them for the sake of trying to get into the mind of the manipulator and what they believe or claim to believe. Number one, people are intolerant and fearful of solitude, physical or mental. Isolation of targets is brainwashing 101. Funnily enough, Bernays uses the term bandwagon, which is the name of a fallacy his ideology or mode of PR is based around. He writes, man is never so much at home as when on the bandwagon. Are these guys really just messing with us? You know, I get the same feeling about Laban several times. They have to be messing with us. You know, they have to know better, right? Anyone who reads Einstein's autobiography can cite that popular man as refutation to the point that we apparently don't like solitude. Einstein sought solitude, physical and mental. So did Isaac Asimov, as did many other great thinkers of our species. The opposite of intolerant of it, right? They actively sought it. Of course, when you're young, you know, teens tend towards the pack, right? This is, but as their minds mature, they branch off in, in any direction in this regard, right? So his second point is, he is more sensitive to the voice of the herd than to any other influence. Not everyone falls for the fallacious appeal to the masses. Bernays cites Trotter claims as to have uh, as to the effect of people who are exploited by the fallacious appeal to the masses as evidence to his claim that many, implicitly all, fall for it. Right? Not only that all mankind fall for it, but that he shares this trait with all gregarious animals. 
All right. We know this is overgeneralized garbage. They believe it is the source of his moral code, sanctions his ethics and his philosophy, and it can endow him with energy, courage, or endurance, or easily take it away. Acquiescence in his punishment and the embrace of the executioner, submit to poverty, bow to tyranny, and sink without complaint under starvation. <laughs> so the, the power-hungry sociopath should be getting pretty hard at this point, right? This is who he's appealing to. This is, this is, he's putting the bait out there. So not just wake him, accept hardship and suffering unresistantly, but it can make him accept as truth that his perfectly preventable afflictions are sublimely just and gentle. I get the idea of not wanting to look into the minds of others for fear of darkness we might find. Trotter and Bernays come across to the observer as fucking psychotic, right? To think of using the power of manipulation just to make others suffer and not benefit the, the manipulator for the target to accept their unnecessary and perfectly preventable suffering and hardship as sublime and just and gentle. Jesus, this is entering the really messed up uh, psychopathy of the royals, right? Of royalty, of executives and, and Marxists. It is really, truly bent. You know, how, how does this dark, twisted crap benefit our species? I feel like I, I need to soak my brain in soap after reading that bit of shit. You know, not being brainwashed, but to wash and cleanse my brain, right? To clean it of the filth. I should apologize to my mind after exposing it to such filth. Am I conditioned to not want to inflict unnecessary suffering in others? Is this an anomaly? Is, is, is it in my genetics? Am I conditioned for this? I don't know. Perhaps. I just don't see the benefit to me or anyone in inflicting unnecessary suffering in others. You know, only only in public relations would we come across this, right? Even for the most egregious scumbags that deserve capital punishment, it should be quick, painless, lights out, end of game, right? Call me a liberal for my, you know, preferred killing methodologies, right? I don't know what would lead to uh, to psychopathy evolutionarily. Perhaps this is what uh, gets power, and that enables power uh, or better survivability of our genetics. Or you know, perhaps you know, it's the killing of another animal to eat it. You know, you don't want to feel guilty, so maybe this is where psychopathy sort of flops over. I don't know. But then, why do I feel that it is so wrong? Right? Why do what? Why would I have that in my genetics? Right? Unnecessary suffering is feared, and fear is a tool of manipulation. But the targets of that manipulation may not necessarily be those who are suffering, right? They, they, they need to be aware of it in order to fear it. So if one is conditioned via whatever method to accept it as sublime, they surely won't be fearful of it. So we need to take a step back here. So are they targeting the the people who are watching the the bystanders are they targeting the people who are they're actually making suffer right so we got to step back is, is this you know all could we all just be baseless assertions by Trotter you know via Bernays though these thoughts are 
apparently shared by them. Otherwise, why would they share it, right? So this this heart of darkness, this apocalypse now. Odd that uh, apocalypse etymology comes from uncover or revealing something, right? That's where the word uh, apocalypse comes from, to uncover or to reveal something, and how it's since been twisted to mean complete destruction of the world. It's almost as if the old priest class were trying to scare people to not uncover or reveal something, that their ideology is founded on bullshit. You know, maybe the, that, that, that awareness would destroy their world, right? So anyways, let's continue with the Bernays Heart of Darkness, right? So he's saying people are fearful of solitude. They are completely controllable via the fallacious appeal to the masses. Uh, his third point is pretty much the same as the second point. They're controllable controlled by the fallacious appeal to the masses, but the focus needs to be on emotion. So that's number three is just really focus on emotion, right? Subject to the passions of the pack in his mob violence and his fears, his panics, you know, appeal to emotion. Masses utilize fear, right, to isolate mentally and physically. So number four is he is remarkably susceptible to leadership, He's remarkably susceptible to leadership. Of course, there are many who have issues with authority, and justifiably so. But people often do what they are told. There is uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, hierarchy of lobsters. These might be all generalizations or overgeneralizations, but if there's a critical mass susceptible, it is a viable vector of attack. The defense, therefore, would be not to do what anyone tells us without cogent uh, facts or without a cogent argument as to why, right? Context dependent, of course. In, in an emergency, if someone yells, do X, we may not have the time to analyze. And, it, and this is, of course, a vector of attack. Like I said earlier, if there's not enough time or if there's a perceived emergency, right? So his fifth point is, his relations with fellows are dependent upon recognition of his being a member of the herd. Total tribalism, which is, of course, uh, a stereotype to assume everyone of a group feels that way. So a thought on mob violence. The greatest violence perpetrated is not due to the whims of a mob, but by the cold calculations of politicians, experts, they're hidden masters and exposed useful idiots. Only at that level of useful idiot is mob violence even remotely relevant. Trotter claims that simply to believe something is or must be is an ineradicable natural bias. The bias to believe can't be eradicated in humans, apparently, according to him. So I'm interpreting that he is claiming we are all naive and gullible and that susceptibility to having to draw a conclusion cannot be eradicated. Even if this so-called bias to have to believe something does exist, he's only claiming it is a bias and not mandatory that we have to make a final decision instead of suspend judgment. While we probably all do have the bias, if what I interpret is what he means, but even, even the, uh, the bias is ineradicable. So does that not mean that we can still, we can't suspend judgment? We just apparently have a predisposed bias to not suspend it, which can you know easily be overcome. 
if he's talking about naivete, experience does have a way of giving us street street smarts. Perhaps he's talking about a different thing. When it comes to manipulation, perhaps the bias to have to believe can't be controlled by some. I still don't know uh, how people deal with the fact that their trusted news sources lies to them if they have a memory that's longer than like a month old. <laughs> you know, when the truth comes out, don't they realize they've been burned? The, you know, they don't make contingencies to protect themselves from that happening again. <laughs> it, it's bizarre. Or they just dismiss it. There's nothing I can do, right? As they're told to think, are you going to change the world? <laughs> you know, just by talking about it? Well, actually, yeah, you are. You can, right? So again, Trotter is talking about the bias. He doesn't stress it or, or give evidence for that matter. Uh, Trotter claims affirmations, positive or negative, are more readily accepted than rejected if their source is associated with the herd. Perhaps, perhaps not. This is an affirmation about affirmations. So Trotter is using affirmations on us while explaining only the idiot mob falls for affirmations. So we can reframe things to make that statement appear true, but that does not make it so. And it doesn't matter if it is true or not, only that it is what the exploiter class believe and based on their, you know, that's what their uh, professional manipulations are based on. So spookily, Trotter finishes in italics. Man is not therefore suggestible by fits and starts, not merely in panics and mobs, under hypnosis and so forth, but always, everywhere, and under any circumstances. That is what the manipulator class believe. So what are the points? Isolation. Fallacious appeals to the masses is all-powerful. Fallacious appeal to panics and fear and mob violence. We are remarkably suggestible to leadership, (laughs) tribalism, naive gullibility everywhere and always. So these are six of the five uh, characteristics that all people are susceptible to as pressure points of manipulation. All mankind, according to these guys, right? Bernays weekly cites the cliché. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, as somehow proof of the suggestibility of people. Now, how is that statement proof? It's not even a quote. It's just an idiom that goes back to the 4th century. You know, the empire, when St. Augustine uh, moved to Milan and noticed the congregation did not fast on Sundays. So the bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose, told St. Augustine, when in Rome, do as the Romans do meaning when in Rome, fast on Sundays. When in Milan, if you want to eat, eat, (laughs) right? So what is Bernays thinking? How is when in Rome somehow proof that people are suggestible? This is, uh, there's no correlation that people actually ever did, you know, uh, whatever, you know, did do what the Romans did while in Rome, right? It's just like talking, it's just, uh, it's just jive talk between two bishops that happen to resonate throughout the centuries, right? Simply telling people what to do doesn't work always, right? Sometimes it does, sometimes it don't. The fact that the, the saying is a cliche is, is only evidence that people say it, not that they comply with it. So Bernays writes a fallacious appeal to the profession of psychologists as having defined the fundamental equipment of the individual mind and its relation to group reaction 
or for the PR council. So we don't know much about the mind or anything at this point, and we knew a lot less <laughs> in the 1920s. So Bernays sounds like the uh, type of uh, fool who would claim the science is settled. It's essentially what he's saying, right? which is the most unscientific statement ever. I'm sure the assertions of psychologists in the 1920s have evolved since, and to assume this illogical tome of stereotype is something psychologists should be proud of is embarrassing to the field, though the soft sciences can, you know, can scarcely be called science. <laughs> so they are probably, you know, too ignorant to be embarrassed. <laughs> so he claims we have the motivations of the individual mind. So bullshit. We read about his basis assertions or affirmations on motiva uh, motivations. Same with the, the group mind. But on top of that steaming pile, he hasn't even proven that the group mind exists. So we are halfway through Bernays' book, and I am deeply disappointed in the fallacian, uh, fallacious reasoning and invalid proofs. I would have hoped that there was actually some valid points behind it that can be we can be you know examine and and come up with defenses against. But it's not. It's all this bullshit. Yet there's still some effect, which is the scary part. So, you know, the fact that uh, PR has, maybe it's not a fact. Well, I guess it is a fact. I'm just asserting PR has effect. The uh, the apparent uh, fact that uh, that PR has any effect is a miracle. So I attribute that to the the garden hose analogy of accuracy. You know, a wide spray is more accurate as it hits the target, but it's less precise. So you fling a lot of shit and some of it might stick. This is how evolution works, right? A lot of random chances. And if one of them works, that's great, right? The, the ones that don't, don't matter, they die off, right? So the reasoning can be, a, you know, of uh, off, right? It can be a false reasoning, but there can still be some effect to some of the methods on some people. So why they come up with these, the, these uh, actions, Maybe false, but there may be some effect to them or with them, I guess. So as a species, you know, we are mostly wrong, but uh, we're right enough to achieve our goal, you know, whatever that is. Think of the uh, the many atomic models that we had, right? In electronics, we don't care about the atomic science too much beyond what electrons are in the outer shells. So we can successfully build a lot of high-tech without knowing the actual underlying truth our models are sufficient, though we know they are not accurate, but they are accurate enough to get the job done. This is what I think a good analogy of is what's going on with uh, manipulation. So the uh, he goes on now about uh, the group and herd are the basic mechanisms of public change. So he's really stressing appeal to the mob, right? It kind of bugs me that this idiot Bernays conflates group and herd, you know, earlier without defining herd and now treats them as separate phenomena, you know, like pick a lane, right? The twisted dark heart thinking indicates to me something more than just uncritical thinking, something other than fallacious stereotype, something, you know, more sinister normalization of this dark heart psychopathy, right? Perhaps uh, a beginning of a conditioning to its uh, twisted perverse evil mode, which may be necessary, you know, uh, it might be a necessary frame of mind 
in order to manipulate others as a living and still be able to sleep at night. It's odd, don't you think, that Bernays and Trotter would explain the extent of the power of fallacious appeal to the masses as something so psychopathic, so psychopathically, yeah, psychopathically dark heart, right, as the unnecessary suffering, right? It's as if the true goal is not to condition the people to the whims of their clients. That is just the source of their revenue. Their true goal is the dark heart psychopathy of creating unnecessary suffering in others. On top of that, mess up their minds of the victims to the point that they consider their unnecessary suffering sublime. This normalization, this twisted dark heart psychopathy would be necessary to carry on their their cult psychopathy. So this is way beyond just convincing women to not cut their hair or people to eat more bacon till they die of a heart attack. This is a tender to the psychopath that, boy, do we have a job for you, and it's in public relations. (laughs) I do not think that normal, well-functioning humans can be conditioned to become such dark heart psychopaths. This is a call a search for the psychopaths out there to steer them into public relations, a CIA-type scouting for assassins or for people who enjoy torturing others. Conditioning a soldier to shoot or kill someone is one thing. The slow, methodical, drawn-out sadisticness of torturing a fellow human is quite another. Hot-headed interrogations, you know, getting out of hands is, you know, well, unacceptable, it is understandable. But the intentional... Uh, pre-planning and execution of torture is quite another. And to do PR at this dark heart level is a dimension worse than that. Whatever the true purpose, this dark heart expose is a red flag in my books. Whatever we think of the, the, the movie trope of the evil Dr. Henchman who opens up their toolbox of bone cutters and torture devices, this sadistic and wanton mindfucker of PR, it's Perhaps the subclass of dark heart psychopaths among us uh, trying to gather, you know, you know, as dog whistles, right? The secret winks and, and head nods. They're trying to gather uh, en masse or just gather together, I guess. I don't know. So JFK tried to warn us about secret organizations. Uh, this subclass of uh, subhuman would definitely be drawn to the type of red teams of manipulation and promote messages if they were ever outed that their existence as a conspiracy theory. So I'm not claiming all people in sales, advertising, and other professions of manipulation are these dark type, dark heart psychopath types, but it's not beyond the, the realms of reason or plausibility that dark heart psychopaths are drawn to these fields and thrive, right? The stereotype of the failed shoesman, shoesman, shoe salesmen, because they aren't hard enough. You know, they're too nice. The Al Bundys, right? They're not dark heart psychos who enjoy mind messing, uh, Uh, their customers with their job just, you know, being a vehicle for them to do that. PR uh, scum wouldn't put on a billboard, you know, calling dark heart psychos, we have a job for you. That would, you know, probably, that would probably get them some free press. Maybe they should do that. But uh, they wouldn't be able to spin it, I don't think, to be tongue in cheek. Maybe they could. I don't know. But more realistically, they would probably get free press, you know, uh, in a more clandestine way, you know, if they were to do it at all. I would think. So these these dark heart concepts uh, go to a depth that my presumably normal mind would not normally contemplate. 
you know, I have postulated that CSO, CSOs, CEOs, and other power-hungry uh, types enjoy power over others, i.e. telling their slaves what to do. But this dark heart psycho is a step further than I could imagine to manipulate their slaves, slaves to the point that they enjoy their slavery. Even that model doesn't do the, the evil justice as these, these targets aren't even slaves. They are targets exposed to unnecessary suffering. And then they are further manipulated to believe their unnecessary suffering is, is, is sublime. This, the, the slave model, at least used for production of goods and their conditioning to enjoy their slavery is to lessen their suffering, I would assume. <laughs> right. The dark heart psycho model has no beneficial production of goods and serves no earthly purpose. Unnecessary uh, suffering and then mess them up even more. Do they, you know, even get amusement out of it? You know, Bernays is is now dead, so I can't ask him. But there's still a lot of the, uh, you know, manipulator class out there. We have seen deeper into the darkness than perhaps uh, we would like. And it's from the innocent research of public relations. <laughs> Who knew, right? Dog whistles and winks among the, uh, the psycho class of non-human, subhuman, inhuman, appearing under the guise of humans, right? There are different modes of data acquisition for, you know, for humans when reading, right? We can read fast and get the gist, or we can read at a normal pace, you know, for reasonable comprehension. Then there's the third mode where we read slowly and critically and examine every little crag and valley of the text and think about what they really mean and explore that like a deep dive. You know, anyone who studied anything like the real sciences, you know, or math knows what I'm talking about. Though sometimes we have to slow down and go down one of these valleys, we see it as a dark and bottomless pit that falls straight to hell itself. Never experienced that until public relations, right? I wonder if one can get PTSD from reading about public relations. You know, when we read faster, it's very easy to misinterpret or fill in the blanks with a guess and just keep on reading. And that guess would be from our morals and values and belief limits, right? We just whoosh, skip right over it. But uh, perhaps, you know, like in, in meme theory, there are there are other consciousnesses that are the combination or collection of ideologies or, or evil concepts too, right? A meta meme theory. If a single meme can be a consciousness, perhaps a collective of memes can be a higher level of meme conscious consciousness. This dark heart psychopathy as a meme consciousness would be the necromancer searching with its unblinking eye for vulnerable targets to exploit and make its collective consciousness exist on a larger scale. These targets being future exploiters, lusters of power, CEOs, politicians, and of course, PR counsel. Or it could be a host of necromancia, you know, a society of necros or a nation or perhaps a world of necromancia who exist or feed off the meme or manifestation of their evil mode of thought or values incarnate. I guess bi bi biblically they would be uh, demons. Today, some would identify them as alien consciousness. Uh, still others would uh, uh, pin it in the uh, dark heart of man, but uh, that feels too simplistic to me. I don't believe we all have the capacity to embrace that level of evil. Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Right? This is, this is not heated violence and savagery. This is something much darker and much older than Necromancer's dark heart. Meme theory is a guess. So the planting of wants, 
than not satisfying them. That the, the carrot is the idea of attaining the wants, not the actual satisfying of them. Truth, good, is a choice. Error, evil, is a choice. And it appears easier and more powerful, but it is not. Choosing error, error is all error needs to take control. Fighting error is a constant battle to find and maintain the truth. Why do all these idioms about searching for the truth sound so cliche and ancient and biblical? Error falsely appears as an ocean or desert when the truth is more alike uh, a garden of healthy and delicious fruit and veg mixed among beautiful, poisonous, and deadly plants. They may both taste good, but it takes critical observations to determine which is poison and which is healthy. Manipulation is not about satisfying the wants of the target or even exposing latent wants of the target. Manipulation is about implanting wants into the target and then use those wants as a carrot to motivate and steer the target. Don't you want to be safe? My grade eight teacher once asked our class, don't you want to learn this? And one voice popped up, piped up saying, no, I don't, <laughs> right? So what wants can be implanted? The want for justice, the want for revenge, the want for destruction, the want for peace, the want for ease, the, the want for change to slow down. We are, uh, we're just silly monkeys that uh, can have our wants played with if we are not paying attention. Once a target is picked, if they can control their values, judgment, mode of thinking, they will control the target's choices. What should be? What do I want? Use this fallacious thinking because our ideology is bullshit and, uh, and you will see that if you think rationally, therefore you must embrace the fallacious modes of thought to not see it rationally, right? Bernays titles the, uh, the section or whatever, the, the group heard are the basic mechanisms of public change. So change is the goal of the motivator. They have to change the target to think the way the master wants. That is the purpose of PR, change. There is, of course, change in life, and we as a species are adaptable to change, and that strength is being targeted as our weakness, a vector of attack, using our strength as our weakness. Change for change's sake uh, can not only be useless, it can be detrimental. In the context of life, variety is the spice of life, not change for no reason. Our immune system does not like change, the new or unknown, and that mode has valid been, been validated by millions of years of evolution. Not to say we shouldn't explore, explore the unknown or change for the better. Of course we should, but random change for the sake of change is what cancer is. The small-minded fool might think I'm arguing against change despite my calling our adaptability to change our greatest strength. <laughs> right? Change and innovation to something better are powers for good equally powerful for forces of evil, right? Whether there is a change, um, whether there is change, we must ask if it is beneficial or necessary. What evidence supports it versus the current mode, right? What are the potential pitfalls, etc.? pros, cons, cost, benefit analysis, whatever. If, if someone is pressing for change for the sake of change, i.e. disruption, they are doing it uh, to avoid critical analysis. Paint them with a scarlet letter and walk away. Wants. 
When someone wants something, it could be a want based on some form of manipulation. All wants are a force to act. Are our wants controlled by genetics? Perhaps, you know, some are. Food, shelter, reproduction, defense, perhaps offense. I'd say definitely they are, right? Can a foreign substance dictate wants like a chemical or drug? Well, marijuana notoriously amplifies the want of munchies. So drugs can indeed amplify specific wants we already have. Can it produce a want that we do not currently have? Well, there was research performed at Arizona State that was funded by DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the U.S. government. I think it was only like a $6 million deal. But the study was called Toward Narrative Disruptors and Inductors, Mapping the Narrative Comprehension Network and Its Persuasive Effects, which was to study uh, a study to disrupt an individual's comprehension of very specific stories or narratives. They used uh, magnetic stimulation on the uh, old cranium, which is, you know, spooky enough. But what's worse is they studied methods to use words only to disrupt cognition of specific narratives. This form of propaganda weapon has vast implications if it works and gets into the hands of amoral douchebags. Hopefully, if I remember, I'm going to do a podcast on that study. After a few years, um, the Arizona State study, they, uh, they stopped the study apparently around 2016, or more likely it went dark and the CIA or some other three-letter uh, group took ownership and branched off uh, in camera. So the takeaway for us today is that there's apparently a narrative a comprehension network in our brains. So marijuana can create a want in us like the munchies that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So yes, chemicals can indeed create wants in us. I'm sure that mechanism has been studied by uh, science and uh, nefarious characters, but I doubt the why to that mechanism has been. Why would weed want us to munch? Does it care? Is it just false triggering of hungry by a, a random chemical that we happen to have receptors for? I don't know. It's plausible. So Bernays claims the institutions that make public opinion operate in an environment that is also an influencing factor. He refers to this environment as a controlling background. He apparently figures showing some examples will prove his examples, prove its existence. We shall see. Bernays writes, how powerful standards control the very institutions which are supposed to form public opinion. So Bernays refers to the circle of obedience and leadership, again with his incessant claims of feedback of the targets onto those poor manipulators. This feedback, of course, only being limited to the manipulator's manipulations, which is a sliding goalpost. The larger the emotional appeal, the more fear used. The quicker the larger step of bullshit, the target will believe. Only if these steps are within the target's current belief and moral limits. So Bernays explicitly mentions the press, school, and other leaders of thought as the institutions. So there you go. Bernays' examples demonstrate that he really knows about the linear relation between manipulator and the target, but is desperately trying to reframe it as some perverted quasi-mutually beneficial arrangement. Uh, 
with the manipulator benefiting by impressing the narrative of their paying clients into the unsuspecting minds of the public, and the public win by being conditioned to better serve their puppet masters. Here's a quote. That the press is so frequently unable to achieve a result makes it evident that the press itself is working in a medium which it cannot entirely control. The only factor that frustrates the manipulator is the rate at which they can manipulate. So it's an interesting point that the godfather and patron saint of public relations wrote, uh, you know, the press are unanimously set in a narrative they want to implant into the minds of the exploitable, unsuspecting target, i.e. everyone in the general public. Say that same point today about the uh, press and be smeared as a conspiracy theorist, you will be. (laughs) Brene swims around the interpretation of the New York Times motto, all news that is fit to print. The general idea is that the determination of what is fit to print is determined by the sale of the paper using, you know, that metric, CNN's bias, lies, and fake hysteria, especially surrounding Trump, is not fit to print as their reviewers have, uh, their reviewers, their viewers have plummeted. So the same goes with so-called news media in Canada today. Their numbers are tanking, and instead of correcting their blatant bias, they simply get government handouts to subsidize their lies. So what could be the metric for so-called news media today if they don't care about the ratings anymore? Like a lab rat pushing, you know, a button for cheese, they push the government's lies and receive the cheddar. So selling panic and fear porn might, you know, sell to some, but that's uh, what so-called journalism is. Uh, should should they? That's what they're doing, but should they be doing it, right? It's a, it's a diminishing system. They don't seem to care about the interest of the general public. They will dwindle down into a, uh, you know, a cult mag that only preaches to their choir of zealots. But they don't care. Yet again, Bernays claims the public is somehow in control of the standards of fitness created in the minds of the publishers express the point of view of a mass of readers. So not the mass, a mass. It appears that is the point Bernays is trying to make. The news stories must be presented as from the perspective or directed to a fantasy dream audience the publishers want them to be. Not as they currently are, which is almost of no consequence other than the starting point to navigate from. So keeping in mind the morals and truth are of no consequence to the manipulator. So Bernays claims the fact that they have to sell to the public is evidence that they must please the public. This, using Bernays' own words, is not the case, and it's bizarre. He keeps flip-flopping on this. So it's as if he drops a, a dog whistle you know, of what the uh, necromancer class really wants or does, and then virtue signals so that the passive, uncritical reader trying to make sense of the repetition uh, you know, and is swayed by that repetition. So this to me sounds crazy. You know, if it weren't for Bernays' own words that I can flip back to and reaffirm what he quote, right? What he just wrote. So the messages hidden in plain sight is the bread and butter of the conspiracy theorist, admin, and PR council alike. So I recall uh, left-wing nutbars screaming about meta messages that propagated the ideas of the majority, which was in fact just advertisements and propaganda targeting the majority of society with no nefarious intent. 
whereas those left-wing nutbars today are apparently on boards of organizations that control advertisements, propaganda, and news, and are using that concept of meta-message against the majority of society. It's not a leap to think it's plausible that the sect of numpars who screamed about a concept squirm their way into uh, effect and are now using those very concepts against those who they hate, the majority, the masses, the people. The complexity of irrational thought, ego, and its apparent ubiquity are the factor of attack by the manipulator. Are so many humans like that today a result of design by campaigns over many years or just the uh, instinct, uh, you know, of subpar, you know, uh, cognitively impaired humans, you know, or is it some form of, you know, uh, just a cognitive nature in humans, right? I can only speculate. Perhaps it's a mixture of all the above, right? As writers on the crowd and manipulation both point out, there is no apparent and easy quantifiable demographic that falls for deception the educated and the uneducated alike, the rich and the poor, the intelligent and the ignorant. The factor that is our best hope of defending ourselves in the dark arts is having the critical spirit. It doesn't appear to be uh, an entirely wired genetic trait, you know, as we all can be duped. And those who uh, catch it are just the kids who happen to notice the puppeteer's strings for whatever reason. Perhaps someone told us what to look for, or we just noticed it in ourselves or on our own. You know, something we uh, we can't unsee. So what is the mechanism or catalyst for free thought? What breaks us from our cults? 